Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight. Plus, enjoy guaranteed free shipping and returns. Don't miss our special Mother's Day deals. Save big on the season's most beautiful trends. For a limited time, get up to 50% off by going to BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. One of the subtle themes of The Last Dance, the Michael Jordan documentary, went something like this. The same traits that made you a peerless basketball player don't necessarily translate all that well in the real world. Being a surpassing NBA star doesn't make you a surpassing NBA owner. Imposing your will on teammates doesn't mean you can impose your will on your office colleagues. Use a perceived slight to inspire yourself to, say, humiliate LeBradford Smith or beat the Seattle Sonics in the NBA Finals. That's great. But when you descend Mount Olympus, that same hyper-competitiveness has its drawbacks. But that was Michael Jordan, and now here comes Magic Johnson is counter-programming, making the exact opposite point. Basketball skills can carry over to society at large. In 1979, Magic, of course, led Michigan State to the NCAA title. In the final game, the Spartans beat Larry Bird and the Indiana State Sycamores in the highest-rated basketball game ever played. Roughly 40 million Americans watched that game, this at a time when the U.S. population was 225 million, about 100 million less than today. During the game, the late Dick Enberg noted that Magic Johnson could shoot and pass and dribble, and yeah, it helped that he was sometimes as tall as the other team's centers. But his real gift? Vision. Magic, Enberg told us, saw plays develop before other players did. He could glimpse opportunities and openings and positioning in advance of everyone else. Eleven years later, Richard Hoffer, as gifted and funny as any SI writer, profiled Magic Johnson, who by then had already established himself as one of the towering figures in basketball history. Magic had won three MVP awards, he'd led the Lakers to five titles, that's half the rings dispensed in the 1980s, and he'd made ten All-Star appearances. The story was all about Magic's vision and awareness and ability to see around corners, his peerless point guard skills, in other words. But the profile had very little to do with basketball. It was about Magic, the businessman. The story bore the classic early 90s magazine-style headline, Magic's Kingdom. The subhead was Lakers star Magic Johnson owns L.A., and someday he has plans to own a lot more. 
The story is filled with the kind of dated references that make this going back exercise fun and also reminding us that celebrity can be disposable. Where is Arsenio Hall these days anyway? Or MC Hammer? Or the word posse? And suffice to say that Michael Ovitz is no longer the most powerful man in town. But damn, the part about Johnson, who was then 31, sure ages well. He can do what he wants here, Hoffer wrote about magic in L.A., and for all his playful innocence, he's not unmindful of the opportunities this gives him. Man, what a sentence. The son of a Michigan garbage man, Magic, was instantly at home in L.A., and it wasn't the beaches or the movie sets. It was a place that fed his ambition. In L.A., you didn't buy the record of an artist you liked. You promoted their tour. You didn't endorse a soft drink. You looked to start your own distributorship. You didn't look to open a restaurant or a store. You aspired to start a sports franchise. As Magic said in the piece, quote, I have goals. I want to be in that 100 to 200 million range to own an NBA team. Okay, the 100 to 200 million as a purchase price, that didn't age so well. But here we are in 2020 and Magic is probably worth a billion dollars. He owns a piece of a team and life is good. Testament to those point guard skills. Priya Desai takes us back to 1990, when Johnson Inc. was still a startup. eighties or nineties, you may remember a show called Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The title is pretty self-explanatory. Welcome to television's unchallenged authority on wealth, prestige, and success. It's another dazzling Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. The show perfectly captured the zeitgeist of this era, luxury, excess, materialism. The tagline for the show was Champagne Wishes, and caviar dreams. So imagine getting a reporting assignment in 1990 to talk to one of the biggest NBA stars about his life as an entrepreneur. Richard Hoffer ended up getting from Magic Johnson was ahead of its time. Sure, people talked about money, but not like this and not with an athlete. As you see in the story, he is nothing if not ambitious. And I I think he wanted to get that out there. So he was, he was, with the program on this one. There hadn't been any sports business journalism at the time to speak of. And in fact, I do remember that it was, it seemed like such a fresh niche that after I had done the story, uh, one of the editors said, would I like to specialize in something like that? And I said, "Um, absolutely not. Uh, (laughs) Which I just didn't want to get pigeonholed into something like that. But it it was a unique enough angle at the time that uh, I think we were even aware that we were doing something new. Ambition, I think, is a central theme to the feature. There's what I found interesting. There's a quote from Michael Ovitz. And for those of you who don't know who that is, he co-founded CAA, which is now a huge talent rep powerhouse. But Ovitz says, we don't represent athletes. And then he considered that more lightweight stuff, which I found surprising considering what CAA is now. 
you know, they rep Derek Jeter and, and Peyton Manning, but was being an athlete in the nineties, was it not considered lucrative outside of their league contracts? Uh, I don't believe it was. I mean, there, I think they date the birth of sports celebrity to Mark McCormick and Arnold Palmer, which would have been some years before then, but nobody had really capitalized on their fame or accomplishments or achievement or celebrity up to that point. I mean, now everybody's a, has their own billboard, but, but back then that was, that was kind of new. And I, I don't think athletes were, I don't want to say appreciated, but they were certainly not exploited or deployed the way they are now. So the idea that you could uh, milk some money out of Magic Johnson, I think was, was kind of new. A few of the scenes uh, in your, your article paints these like big LA business meetings at these super fancy, hard to get into restaurants. Were you at any of those? Did you get to see that firsthand or were these stories that Magic told you? Well, first of all, I'm a sports writer and sports writers don't do power lunches with Michael Ovitz at, at La Dome and, and uh, there is no second of all. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I was not part of that scene. I think that was reliably described to me. Um, most of the other stuff I was on hand for, but, but no, I did not participate in any confabs with the, uh, the moguls and the movers and shakers. I think approaching a lot of these, uh, features, like if they're, if you're just focusing on their athletic careers with athletes, you are in a specific type of interview scenes, but this was, the article is, is essentially about him as a businessman. So what were those interviews like? What were the settings like? Were, were in his home? Was it practice facilities? Did it differ from, let's say, you know, covering someone who's heading to an NBA championship? Uh, not, not really. I mean, if you set out to do a bonus piece on an athlete or you know a profile, a long profile, you would probably do the same things I did. I, I remember that I did spend some time at his home. Uh, I think I did spend some time. I think he was shooting an NBA commercial and I hung out with him there. That was at Poly Pavilion at UCLA. And I think uh, there was a scene at the uh, Riviera Golf Course where he was, might have been a celebrity tournament or something, and I hung out with him there. I essentially approached it the same way as I would any profile. Um, get as much access as you can and hope for the best. Did you approach the feature knowing that you weren't really going to discuss a lot of his on-court career and, and really talking to him more about his desires to become this business mogul. I think that was the, the pitch right from the get go. And I think, I mean, magic is agreeable to anything. And if I wanted to talk about basketball, we would could have done that story too. But I think he was especially eager to reveal this side of, of his life, of his career, I, most athletes, especially superstars, at some point are eager to show they're more than just their triple doubles. And uh, if you get him on something like his business career, or his aspirations and ambitions, I, I think he was, uh, he was fired up to tackle that angle. The piece really, for me, sort of takes a, a turn from athlete who wants to make a lot of money to athlete who wants to be this face of uh, sports business power when he says, you know, casually, I'm, I'm, I need about a hundred to $200 million just throws it out. And, you know, this was 
back in the nineties. So that's about double the amount now. When he starts discussing his ambitions, was there a point where you start to question, well, what is, what is this desire for this amount of wealth for? What are you looking to do? You know, when you brought up this story in the first place, of course, it's 30 years old, and I had very little memory of it until I read it. But immediately, the one thing I did remember was the anecdote he told me when he was a teenager working as a stock boy in this uh, dairy store. I, I can't remember it exactly. And he told me that he would dribble his basketball all the way to work, put the basketball in the toilet in the restroom while he worked. And then when everyone was gone, he would sit in the boss's chair with his feet up on the desk and imagine himself barking orders to imaginary employees. And so this was with him from the beginning. It wasn't a desire for money. I don't think it was a desire for power, but just a desire for importance that he had from the get-go. And I think that informed all these business decisions and all these business ambitions that, that followed. I think he just had a grand vision of himself. He had his idea of what that would be looking at these members of the business community. Even when he grew up, he saw someone who owned a building. Well, that, geez, how could you ever achieve that? That was an ambition off the charts. But when he told me that, that sort of informed the whole story for me. And I, I just understood him a lot better for that. Did he want to accomplish wealth as opposed to fame and, and riches? Was it this idea of, of wealth and the power that's connected to it? You know, again, I don't think it was. I don't think it was about money for him, although I don't think he minded the money. Um, I just think he wanted to be this sort of a pillar in the community. I think he had this notion of himself as as someone you know, important and looked up to and, and respected. And I think that was the motivation for, for most of this. Um, he enjoys the fame. I mean, nobody enjoyed it more than magic, but I, I really do believe that he was, he just wanted to be this kind of a mover and shaker and, and uh, enjoy that. Yeah, you paint a couple of scenes uh, with him when he goes to these charity tournaments and uh, even organizes some some fundraisers for himself. And it you can almost see him as this mover and shaker in that world. So he has that importance and and that little bit of power. But is it fair to say there was still a, a little bit of, of humbleness when he was doing all that? Or am I just sort of projecting that? No, I think, no, absolutely. There was a humility about it, about approaching these these moguls and these titans. I mean, he was in awe of them. And, uh, you know, he, of course he, he owned L.A., you know, in a way he's, he was, he was the most powerful guy in L.A., not these men, but still he was, he approached these guys as mentors and as, as idols and icons. And I think these were the guys he looked up to and, modeled himself after and, and tried to learn from. So I, I, there was a humility about that. I mean, he knew what he didn't know, which was everything when it came to business. And, and he was willing to start from scratch and, and to learn. You met up with him, you said about three times in person? At least, yeah. Mm -hmm. 
how long would you guys sit and talk together? I don't know. He, he was he was generous with his time. Uh, certainly, a, most of the information was probably of the interview part was was achieved at his house. Uh, I, I don't know how long we were together there. Um, I evidently felt it was long enough. Uh, the other things provided some scenes. I, I think going to that NBA commercial shoot was where he was playing horse with a former college basketball player, which was just as illuminating as an interview. When I saw he was down HO to Carol Blaze and he was nervous and upset and uh, he fired off a lot of longer range shots and finally one, he, he fires this crazy shot and I believe he walks off the court before it even goes in. And then, and blaze just slams the ball down and says, this is bullshit (laughs) because by then it just, what seemed like a friendly goof had turned into a very competitive thing. And, And it was just interesting to see him, this fired up over something so inconsequential, but these are our athletes. So I guess we should expect that. His desire for 100 to $200 million has turned into almost a million dollars. He recently just uh, did a, a, a loan program for women and, and minority small business owners who've been affected by COVID. Uh, just, you know, $100 million. Super. to loan out (laughs) whenever you need it. Um, I think what I enjoyed about the article was just how excited he sounded about creating this empire for himself that he clearly wanted to be able to use to help other people. How did he find the time though, right? I, I can't even imagine he was at presumably somewhat the height of his career is 31. Yeah. Sure. There's going to be an eventual <clears throat> decline, but how is he juggling all of this? Yeah. And we haven't even gotten into his womanizing, which must've taken an astonishing <laughs> amount of his day, but uh, he's, yeah, he didn't sit around. He was, uh, I think he, he had some good help. He had some, people who were supportive of him. I mean, Lon Rosen, his agent was a devoted guy. And and as I read through the article, I see some of these business guys who were, no one was exploiting magic. And I guess he was lucky that way. Uh, so he had some help, but, but yeah, he was, he's a high energy guy. I, it, it seems like when you have a, a group of wealthy businessmen and a very well-known athlete, they sometimes just they want to be each other, right? These guys want to be able to play ball and he wants to be able to be as successful financially as these. And he took advantage of that. I I love that part about the camps that he put on. That was just such a genius move. Yeah, he, we talked about people not exploiting him. He was exploiting everyone else and and taking advantage of these contacts. And, And yes, I agree. That was a very illuminating passage. The idea that he would, run this basketball camp for these movers and shakers. And uh, it was just an angle to get some inside dope (laughs) and find out how how do I leverage these businesses and these talents. So, so that was, that was cool. Going in, did you know that this was not going to be a typical sports piece that a bulk of it was going to be about 
his uh, financial desires and, and dreams. And I wonder if there was any pushback on wanting to talk more about him as an athlete. No, I think from the beginning. I mean, if we wanted a basketball story on, on Magic Johnson, someone else would have done it. I mean, I, I was not the NBA guy. You know, they would have sent uh, Jack McCallum in or something. So so they knew they wanted a, a fresh take on this. And uh, I don't think I mentioned one aspect of his play. I don't even think I referred to his basketball exploits at that point. I mean, except to say that he was Magic Johnson and of course, that's a given at this point. He's 31. He's well-established. We, we know what he does. So there, there wasn't any need to dwell on that or even mention it, and I didn't. Uh, so I think that was the point all along. How much of this is something that is just innate, that you're born with, with a desire to want to succeed you know, beyond athletic abilities, and, and how much of it was who was mentoring him and, and who was there to support him? Well, I think in his case, it probably was half and half. I mean, like I said, he was impressed even as a boy with whatever passed for business leaders in his community. And these were his idols as much as Julius Irving was. So he was inclined to begin with. Beyond that, he had opportunity that not too many people get coming out of his situation. So I think it was half and half, but but he certainly, he was born with this ambition, it, it felt like, or nurtured it early on, and uh, and he wanted that. So I, I think, yeah, maybe 50-50. At the same time, there was, of course, Michael Jordan and was there any thought about doing any sort of comparison of the two? Because Jordan had achieved financially leaps and bounds with his contracts with Nike. And, and he was starting, you're starting to see sparks of the businessman in Jordan. Was But you chose to stay away from that. Yeah, I mean, it was a, it was a magic story. So uh, there was no contrast and comparison. I, I, <clears throat> I really don't. I can't say or remember where Jordan was at that point in his career, but but there was a feeling that Jordan, you know, he was a Nike guy or, or whatever. He was that was more or less the typical um, path beyond athletics was endorsements, and and Magic was obviously exploiting different angles than that. He, he was you know not just being on a billboard with a swoosh. He was. Uh, he was trying for investment in Pepsi. That's different, I think. Yeah. He was really wanted to more be a part of that business and own equity and, and grow from there. When I look at what he was doing, I wonder how much of that influenced when you see what LeBron James has done. I mean, he's beyond his endorsements he has a media company and he's created these amazing programs and uh, charter schools how much influence do you think that magic has made showing what he's done with his notoriety and with his desire to grow uh, well, as a businessman i would love to ask lebron that because he seems to be the direct heir to to magic in in those terms that i can think of very few athletes who have who have tried to to do as many different things as Magic did, and now LeBron is doing. 
I mean, everyone is willing to ride uh, the endorsement um, engine. And uh, I think these guys have taken it a step further. There's not, I remember in LA, Oscar De La Hoya, the boxer was, was another one who was willing, he was buying up, you know, newspapers and all sorts of crazy things and, and getting involved in capital finances. So there are very few that go beyond their little realm of, of expertise, which is athletics. You know, LeBron is one. And I, like I said, I think he's the direct descendant of, uh, of magic in that sense. Was there anything that surprised you after this, this story and during the, the process of, of having these, this access to, to magic and his business world? Anything that stood out? Um, not really. I, I guess, you know, as you do these stories, you're just, you know, fighting tooth and nail every day for more and more access. And, and I apparently felt I got enough. So I, I never really stepped back and, and looked at this in any wonder or disappointment or anything like that. You, you sort of, as you do these stories, you kind of have a line counter in your head, like this kind of a piece, the bonus piece is like 600 lines long and which is around, you know, 4,000 words at least. This probably was even longer. And you sort of have an odometer in your head as you're doing this research and in your head, when you get to that 6,000 words, you think, okay, I'm comfortable now and uh, I can relax. But so, so there was never that tension of, of not getting enough in this case. I, I think magic was very generous. So were all the people who, around him. I mean, they were eager. I, I called them guys who had magic as a celebrity pet. You know, they were just as gaga as any adolescence when it came to these sports stars and, and they were all eager to, to help. So it was not a hard story to do. The, the power of sports celebrity is pretty evident in the beginning of your piece when you discuss being in LA and being in Hollywood, which is you know, a little bit like New York. You, you tend to see famous people. Like it's not a big deal unless you're, you know, a typical tourist except when an athlete walks into any restaurant or, or building, like immediately heads turn. And it just seems as though he knew that and he capitalized on it and he ran with it and he ran with it successfully. Oh, I agree. Absolutely. He understood that he had a unique position. Uh, you know, I think he'd walked into enough Ladomes by then and seen enough people stand up and, and give him a round of applause to understand he had something going for him. And the trick was, how do I capitalize on this? And most athletes don't want to capitalize on it beyond getting a standing ovation. But but Magic, I think he saw something there and, and he went after it. And, and I think he got it. Any regrets on uh, not following up for that business of sports vertical career? Not really. I mean, over the course of my time there, I did do some other business type stories, but you know, I didn't want to be the guy who was talking about major league baseball and the economy of their next TV contract or something. I would, I would have jumped out of Rockefeller center if I happened to work there. <laughs> uh, so I, I could see that that was where something like that would head, you know, Oh, what's this new Olympic contract going to be worth? And, and I didn't want to be that guy, but but if down the line, for example, I did George Foreman and uh, his business empire, 
which I was happy to do. I maybe maybe a couple others like that, but but no, I didn't I didn't want to be the business guy. It, it's funny you mentioned that because the the magic story, uh, the foreman story. That's a that's a great story as well. They're they are few and far between even now. And I really would love to know what sets apart someone like magic or, or even LeBron. Cause there's magic gave people a blueprint on, on how to do this and how to capitalize on your sports stardom and really create wealth for yourself. But you don't see it repeated a lot. Is there, if you could just tell us maybe in your opinion, one quality that set him apart and that still sets him apart. Well, I, again, I think it was ambition and, uh, and it wasn't ambition just for money <clears throat> or wealth, but this idea of, I want to be something bigger. And, and I think LeBron has it. And I think someone should do a similar story on LeBron and could do a similar story on LeBron. And for all I know, they have, but I, I haven't read it. And there's very few people like that who, I mean, some of them are so have such delusions of grandeur, you know, and think they're going to be a movie producer or something, but, but very few genuinely have the tools. LeBron, I think would be one of them, you know, to spread their wings like that in a business sense or any other sense. And so I think maybe there's a few missed opportunities where we haven't seized on it, but by and large, I don't see athletes really using their talents in that way. When you spend some time with a guy like magic, I I think you get a sense of of who he is and what he can do. And, and I, like I said, that power of engagement and that ambition, and when those come together, that's, that's a pretty powerful thing. I want to talk to you as Magic Johnson, the businessman. Mm-hmm. What advice would you give to athletes who are playing now who want to get into the business sphere once they're done? Well, number one, get you the best accountant and money manager that you've ever (laughs) had in your life. That's number one and two, because they're going to protect your money. They're going to make sure you go, okay. Now, after that, what are you passionate about? What do you really love that you want to get into that you're going to put 150%, just like you did as an athlete, to become uh, this great professional player, the same amount of time, the same, same amount of discipline, same amount of focus you have to put into being a businessman. And if, you, if you're willing to do that, then now you'll be successful. And then the last and the best information I can give them, start listening to people that know more than them. <laughs> because, great advice. Yeah, because you, you're great at football, you're great at basketball, you're great at hockey, you're great at baseball, but you don't know business. So you got to get you somebody who knows business that can teach you and help you. And that's what I did. Priya, that was uh, was a lot of fun. That was great. I want to ask you, today, every athlete is a mogul. Male, female, regardless of sport, every athlete fancies himself a titan. And they should. But I'm curious, to what extent was this a thing, an ambition in the 1990s? What was interesting is that Magic Johnson had to convince CAA to sign him on as a client. And he was a marquee player at this point. Currently, CAA Sports Division outpaces film and TV and music in revenue. But it wasn't even created until 2006. I kept thinking Magic Johnson is known as this trailblazer in the sense that he revolutionized the point guard position, six foot nine. 
but he really revolutionized this other dimension to sports as well. Look, players were making money off of their name and likeness. The movie Jerry Maguire comes to mind, and that was peak 90s. But if that was checkers, Magic was playing chess. It was about wealth and empowerment, generational wealth. And he clearly succeeded. Johnson could get in any room because, you know, face it, he's Magic Johnson. And we all know he has a winning smile and a winning personality and, and brightens up a room. But to what extent and, and when and where, when did he get this business acumen, this business savvy? What's the origin story there? Charm and wit can get you in the room, but it doesn't get you an equity deal with Pepsi-Cola. Richard talked about how Magic would hold these basketball camps and these CEOs would pay him to teach them basketball, yet he was absorbing every bit of information that they gave him. And he does that to this day. He talks about it all the time, that he surrounds himself with the best of the best in order to elevate you know, his own game, pun intended. Let me ask you a sidebar question. Is it me or is Richard Hoffer the most underrated SI writer ever? <laughs> oh, yeah. The stories that Richard got from Magic were just remarkable. I, I would really recommend going down a rabbit hole and reading a lot of his stuff, unless you're a writer, because then you'll question everything you have done and everything you will do. Simply put, what's next for 60-year-old Magic Johnson? Well, what's next is kind of what I touched on earlier, wealth and empowerment. He has taken what he has achieved and he's putting it back out there. He just recently announced a $100 million loan program for women and minority small business owners who are dealing with the fallout from the pandemic. There's certainly been some missteps. There's a Dodgers story that uh, may kind of show that, but what he has done certainly surpasses the 100 to 200 million mark that he was aiming for back in 1990. Thanks, Priya. That was a perfect score on this dive. Great deep dive. I really enjoyed that. I'm John Wertheim. This is Sports Illustrated's The Record. You can subscribe to The Record on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a review, and we'll have another deep dive next week. Our episode today was produced by Priya Desai and edited by Sean Dolan. Alex Campbell is a supervising producer on the project. Our executive producer is Scott Brody. And SI's director of digital projects and product is Ben Eagle. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.